Let me see the world With clouds Take me to the world Out where I can push Through crowds Take me to the world A world of skies That's bursting with surprise To open up my eyes for joy Take me to the world that's real Show me how it's done Teach me how to laugh To feel Move me to the sun Just hold my hand Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 2nd, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jenna Tessa Fox. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Are you still doing your morning walk, your daily walks? Yes, indeed. I've lost 35 pounds. Awesome. That is awesome. That's Mm -hmm. great. I have them all for you if you ever need them back. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) They'll come back. They always do. (laughs) Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna has been writing about theater for more than 10 years for numerous productions, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, HowlRound. She's a member of the Drama Desk Awards and a contributor to Broadway Radio. Jenna, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. And uh, Peter, I've, since I've been sitting at home cooking so much, I think I've taken on all the 35 pounds. Oh, of I see. Yeah, yeah. I hear that a lot. Yeah. But I've earned uh, every one of them, and that's what matters. <laughs> I agree. Jenna, all that walking to the A train, you know. <laughs> What's a train? What's a train? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a feeling later on we're going to talk about a little chef who can give you some tips. Ooh, Good idea. Works for me. Yep. With us today, we have a very special guest. Raul Esparza is joining us for a second time on Broadway Radio. We saw, we spoke to Raul about five years ago during the summer of uh, pre-pandemic. It was uh, <laughs> 2015 uh, when you were doing the uh, Shakespeare of the Park, Cymbeline, and Cymbeline, Cymbeline. I always get that wrong. Uh, and... Uh, and so I uh, want to welcome Raul back. Raul, thank you for taking your time. You're on uh, a little bit of an out-of-town excursion to uh, a mental break over at uh, P-Town. And thanks for getting up and uh, talking with us on a quiet Sunday morning at P-Town. Yeah, it's really, really nice, actually. I'm looking out at the ocean right now. Not the ocean, but the harbor. It's beautiful. Do you have coffee? Are you? I have a coffee in my hand. I'm curled up in a big chair on a little <sighs> sun porch, and I'm so looking out over a garden to a to the harbor with the ships across the way. So I'm actually rubbing that in because it feels very nice. Uh, <laughs> and you're just uh, sitting by the ocean, the long-haired, angry young man. Yes. <laughs> we were just talking about the length of my hair, and I was just saying that, you know, everybody, this is not as long as I've had it, which was the longest I grew it out was for Che, but then I, I think I kept it this way. That was the National Tour of Vita or? 
20th anniversary national tour of yeah. Vita, which was uh, when did that start? Nineteen eighty-eight, I think, was when we first started on. Who directed that production? I got hired. Larry Fuller, basically recreating what what Hal had done. Hal was staging Parade at the same time uh, that we were uh. in rehearsals at Eight Ninety Broadway, and it was my first real major show that had been cast out of New York because I've, I've been living in Chicago since nineteen ninety-two, and uh, and. Uh, yeah, uh, Larry and Kevin Farrell was a musical director, but it was the whole original design team um, recreating everything. I think they were think they were hopeful that it was going to be a, a Broadway bound production because they spared no expense on that thing. It was a terrific production. I saw it in Newark. Um, it was uh, really quite fine, and you were quite fine in it. But so was everyone. It really was top notch. Thank you, thank you. I I have distinct memories of that show of like of being in over my head <laughs> because I had not, you know, in Chicago, you'll do a run of a show for about a month, a month and a half. If it's, you know, particularly successful, the regionals were a great place for me to work as a kid, not as a kid, but as a, as a young actor, because uh, you were doing a lot of new stuff and you kept going, you could go from theater to theater all the time, but to do eight shows a week of a giant, musical on a production contract that toured the country that was a whole other league for me so that it was it was a steep learning curve but i remember you telling me that um diana dunnigan um said to you look if you're going to really make uh, something of yourself you really have to leave chicago and go to new york uh was yes. this was this tour of um avita yes. part of that plan it was it was very much part of that plan actually i had i had auditioned for a show that i had auditioned for metamorphoses it wasn't called that at the time that Looking Glass Theater Company was doing in Chicago. Yeah, Mary Zimmerman. I had gone for Mary Zimmerman's mm-hmm. piece. I'd gone in because I'm I, and um, I have good friends in that company actually. And then I remember I was also being seen for Vita. It looked like a Vita was going to happen, so I, I bowed out of being considered further for Metamorphoses. It seemed important to uh, I don't know take the next step. Chicago's an incredibly, incredibly great theater town, sure, and it's a spectacular place to work when you're starting out but it is um, also a very small pool in not pool of actors necessarily, but a pool of uh, opportunities. And so you're always in front of the same people. You're always in front of the same casting offices. And there's only a few theaters where you can seriously make a living working. Mm-hmm. And if those are, theaters aren't hiring you all the time, because how could they possibly mm-hmm. it becomes very limiting. And Deanna and I were working together. We had worked together at Steppenwolf and then we worked together at Victory Gardens and um, on a project. And she was like, Oh honey, you got to go. You got to just see where it takes you. And you, you got to go to New York. We were just talking about it the other day. We were, we, we, we had a two hour phone call, I think like two, about a week ago, just sort of sitting on the phone and catching up and seeing how things are going out there for her now and for everybody really mm. in the midst of all this. Um, and, uh, you know, New York isn't for everybody, but it, to, to me, it, it became, it became home. I was treated so extraordinarily well arriving in Manhattan, <laughs> going straight into Rocky Horror. Like that was my first show in New York was a Broadway show. It's insane. And, you know, it was such a terrific production <clears throat> because it really honored the audience that made Rocky Horror what it is. That's what Truly. I loved about it. And, Thank you know, you. Uh, were you nervous about uh, being in that from the vantage point of people were going to scream and yell? I mean, in a sense, this production asked for it because at the beginning, give me an R, give me yeah, an yeah. O, you know, and it seemed like, whoa, you're inviting us to yell and scream and, and comment. Uh, was that a concern? 
it was a concern. And actually, Chris Ashley, who directed it, would say to us, leave a little bit of, don't leave any space for responses. Mm-hmm. Ask for it, let them participate, but don't leave any space. He always, he kind of said it was like a train and we were going faster and faster and the audience should hop on. Now, that's a nice theory, but the problem is, <laughs> you know, by the time, the show was really only 70 minutes long, but there were a few performances there and it might've been because of Dick Cabot's stand-up suddenly <laughs> being incorporated into the intermission mm-hmm. right around the time with the hanging chads and all that nonsense yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with the Gore Bush election. And he, I think he would do 20 minutes at intermission. And, uh, and so the show would come down, you know, after 10 and <laughs> we'd all be like, wait, what happened to our tiny fast moving play? <laughs> once the, once the audience interaction kicks in, it, it, uh, it changes the nature of it. And yeah, we, we were, there was, they were spraying us with water guns. They were throwing toast. There were toilet. There was toilet paper. So eventually, Jordan Roth and the team decided that they needed to uh, sell like a little packet. Do you remember that, Peter? Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, so you can. It's audience participation, but we'll control it. Was the idea mm-hmm. because I remember Alice uh, basically ice skating on that wet floor, wow. trying oh, to yeah. you know, and all of us trying to dodge uh, toilet paper and and the lighters were suddenly like a. a we're going to set the circle and square on fire. That show, <laughs> that show for me was so, it's such a high bar of joy. Tom Hewitt is one of the great sort of leaders, one of the great leads uh. in that he is a, a gentleman and a hysterically funny, <laughs> warm man who is deeply talented and who, who carried no ego. And so my first experience of Broadway began with him leading the company at the top with that uh-huh. energy of uh-huh. joy and Jerry Mitchell and Chris Ashley and that, and that whole team of Tony nominated or Tony winning actors, Leah Delaria, who, who lifted me up and said, you've got this, you're part of us, you know, mm-hmm. you're brand new, but you know, she cheering for me, all Daphne who became family to me, all Jared, who's one of my best friends. We just, um, I had no idea that um, Broadway isn't always like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about the ones that weren't like that. Well, uh, I, all, I, all of I, them. No, not guess, all of them. But <laughs> I guess the words Jeremy and Piven might uh, crop up. Uh, yes, there's, there's a good one. <laughs> another, another show like that was The Homecoming. The Homecoming was another sort of just extraordinary collection of actors working at the top of their game and happy to be at work. And of course you get tired. Eight shows a week is hard, mm-hmm. but the sense of appreciation. I remember Jared saying to me one day, Hey, if you ever don't want to come to work, walk through Schubert alley on your way here, mm-hmm. you know, before half hour, just take a look at those posters and look at all those people. And it's true. Mm-hmm. You just sort of go, look where I am and look what I'm part of. Mm-hmm. And, um, I only did, I did six months of that show and, uh, it was such a, uh, a sort of uh, paradigm of what can, what it can be like to do eight shows a week on Broadway in terms. And also because it was Rocky, it was like a rock concert, you know, Broadway audiences might behave that way a little bit more now, but they certainly didn't all the time then. And it's, it's insane. It was insanity. It was like being launched out of a cannon. And I thought, Oh, well that's Broadway. It's different from all the other theater in the world. And actually it is, but not every show has that energy. So how did you go about, making such a cult role uh, your own and making it distinct. I was terrified of it. I actually did seven callbacks for that show. Wow. Um, they saw me for Frank at one point too. Wow. And I remember wow. looking at myself in the mirror and being like, 
it doesn't matter if I get this part. It just matters that I show up. And like, I think I took my shirt off in the audition. I was wearing high heels and full beat makeup. I, it was a process of dealing with fear every step of the way. I was afraid to audition for it. I was afraid because most of my acting had just been in plays and I didn't want to be um, considered someone who was um, only going to be doing musicals. And I knew it was hard to move back and forth in New York City uh, between sort of forms. I also thought I was far more serious as a thespian <laughs> than playing riffraff. And yet um, it was just so much fun to sing that music that when the music took over and the the handling the the fear the fear of the thing that i really thought i couldn't do that kind of drove drove me for the part there's no preparation on that one you're just kind of looking at b-movie tropes and and being as shameless as you possibly can it it became a kind of frenzy of ad-libbing and um company madness for all of us and that has its own weird improv energy and and that's and that's what it was. And for me, it was just about getting that song down and, and dealing with fear. I have to admit that it was a very frightening prospect for me for probably a lot of reasons. Maybe I sensed that it was a big deal. Maybe I sensed that something huge was coming mm-hmm. my way if I could live up to it. Mm-hmm. Well, know. that makes me wonder uh, if, you know, it's... Uh Rocky was uh, 2000, so it's roughly 20 years ago. Uh, what, what would God. you tell? What, <laughs> what, what would you tell 20 year ago, Raúl, if you could talk to him now? You know, what would you tell him about this? About what you should do with your life and and how you should uh, uh, approach Broadway. I would. I would say, be yourself. Hmm. I would I would say be be completely yourself. Hmm. Um, you will be there is a there's a room for you and own and everything you are in the world. You don't have to be like anybody else. Hmm. You don't have to live up to anybody else's uh, career, anybody else's ideas of what success is. Um, it's going to be okay for you because. Um, just you is enough. I think that it's one of the most important things I've come to learn over time as an actor that when we are young and fearless, generally, we have no idea who we are. Hmm. And the best actors hmm. grow into a sense of themselves that is utterly, um, that contains all, all of them. Now, it doesn't mean they can't play many different kinds of roles, but they can, it contains all their faults and all of their fears and all of their goodness and all of the the foibles and all the things that, that I thought of as failures on my part or, or inconsistencies or uh, what have you. And um, all of it is essential. And I think that young actors now, especially um, should be encouraged to be as sort of notorious with their own personalities as possible, because we are looking for unique human beings. And mm. it's very easy in this business to feel like you need to be the next I don't know, whatever. Because we have nothing to compare it to except what we've already done and what we see being done around us. And we always, always come up short. There's always somebody more talented. There's always somebody taller, prettier, more handsome, far richer. You know, it's, there's always somebody who can ski better, run better, sure. <laughs> get down that hill faster. Sure. But if we, if we compare ourselves constantly, it's maddening. My, mm. my manager, Ellen Flack, who is as important to me as a, as a probably as, as, my, as my mom is uh, someone who always says, you know, compare and despair, honey. <laughs> it's imperative. 
We're in despair. Wow, you've been here with a long time. <laughs> we have. We've been together since I was a Steppenwolf. She represented Neil Patel, who did the set design for Slaughterhouse yeah. uh-huh. Five at Steppenwolf. And then Neil and I worked together on the path. He designed a uh, path for uh, Hulu. Well, yes, so I remember. Um, I remember talking to Ellen when we uh, gave you the Theater World Award. So, I mean, yeah, that's a long time ago. Isn't that something? What a wonderful thing to be able to say. Back to that um, Avita for a moment, by the way. Uh, I, I, alas, did not see it live, but I noticed that there are chunks of it on YouTube. So I highly recommend it to everyone <laughs> for Raul and Natalie Toro. And it's, it's really oh, Amen to Natalie. Wow, that voice, what she mm-hmm. could do. There was talk of revisiting it recently and, you know, revisiting Che for me, but I, I didn't think I could go back. It's a young man's part. And um, <laughs> I could sing it better now, though. <laughs> I sang it well then. I sang it well then, but it was a little bit like, oh, boy, is this going to work out tonight? <laughs> As opposed to the feeling of, you got this. <laughs> Musicals are hard. Speaking of Jeremy Piven, we had a conversation one day where he told me, I'm so bored. It's just so tiring. I'm very tired here. It's so tiring to do this. <laughs> and I remember saying, um, Jeremy, we're a hit. We got rave reviews. We're sold out every day. It's a comedy. There's no intermission. And you're on Broadway. If you don't like this, well, then you just don't like it. And it's okay. You don't have to. I said, but do you want to talk about tired, you know, being tired? Be in a musical. <laughs> go, <laughs> go do a Broadway musical. <laughs> Well, apparently you like to do shows of people who were born on March 22nd because, of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber is a beta. But what did company mean to you? Um, did you were you a Sondheim fan? Did you know who he was? Anything like that? Well, of course. I mean, I remember reading about Steve or Mr. Sondheim at the time, I imagine. When I was a kid in Miami, um, I've told this story many times, but I got that Broadway book, the Martin Gottlieb probably a book from my parents and I mm. poured through that thing like it was the Bible. And uh, for me, it was a new religion and I had no idea that there was this world beyond Miami. I had an extraordinary mentor as well at a community theater in, in Miami called Lakewood players uh, named Lee Pittman, who had done work on Broadway, but was a beautiful director who produced some perform some productions down there in Miami. I did a baby with him. I was 16 when I played Danny in it. Uh-huh. And, uh, he also did a She Loves Me that is still one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen comparable to any major production. A Pippin that was surprising, which I was supposed to do and couldn't do. So I, I got a job at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, which was my first professional job, so I couldn't do the community theater show. Lee was someone who would um, have the cast over and we'd do rehearsals and we'd listen to music and we, he would play show, show albums. He had all those window cards. And he introduced me to, to Steve's Follies concert, told uh-huh. me the story of what was happening at that. And I had seen my girlfriend at the time and I in California, had gone to see her brother and Sweeney Todd at Selena's stage, which was a great production, I still remember. So everything about his work had been um, colored by a lot of um, someday or maybe or what if. I had auditioned for a lot of Sondheim shows in Chicago and not been cast in any of them. A production of Merrily and a production of Assassins and also a, a production of Night Music that I came very close to for Henrik at the Goodman. And I remember saying when that didn't happen, well, maybe I'm just not good enough to do Sondheim's mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Um, so I first actually auditioned for uh, Steve. I, I didn't audition for him, but I auditioned for Wise Guys on that Evita tour. Uh-huh. Uh, when we were at NJPAC, we, I came into town. We had tickets to see Closer 
which mm-hmm. I was watching mm-hmm. at exactly the time that they scheduled an, an audition for me. And I just decided to leave the play and go, go to the audition and go back to the theater. <laughs> I don't, there's a whole chunk of that play. I didn't see. Um, <laughs> I tanked. I mean, I just completely when I sang not a day goes by for Paul Gimignani and Sam Mendes and went completely blank in terror. And, um, and luckily they didn't remember years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I went in for him for Assassins, which I, while, while I was doing Rocky Horror, and I was cast in Assassins for the production for 2001 as Zangara. And I left Tick, Tick, Boom off Broadway to go do Assassins. And then September 11th happened. Yeah. And that production was canceled. Though we did read it, that, that group read it, with Douglas Sills playing Booth at the time. But a lot of the, the rest of the cast was the same. And, yeah. so I, and that led to actually then working with Steve, uh, shockingly, at, at probably one of the greatest experiences of my whole life, the Kennedy Center uh, Stonehenge Celebration where I played George and I played Charlie in Maryland. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, that summer was, um, we all, we call it the Sondheim summer camp. And Christine mm-hmm. Bransky would, would always say, we're going to remember this for the rest of our lives. This sure, sure. We're going to tell our grandkids. So when company came around, actually company was not among my favorites of his shows, but I had seen John Doyle Sweeney. First I hated it <laughs> and then wandered <laughs> around and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I went back to see it again. And then I, and then I, and then I went back to see it again. I just kept going back and was so floored by it and, and more and more disturbed by it. And, and Patty's performance had me sobbing and I ended up being like, I just want to work with this man. And Bernie Telsey then came up with the idea that he wanted me to meet him on, on company and Bernie and Ellen um, put a meeting together. John doesn't um, really audition people. You sit and you talk with him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he offered me, he offered me Bobby in that very first meeting we talked about, Hey, you know what? I think he should probably, he can't play. They play for him. He cannot play his own music. He has to learn to play for himself. <laughs> and so um, I had known Steve and known him quite a bit and had done those shows and he'd been involved a little bit in Tick, Tick, Boom. And so he and I sat for a long time before I went to Cincinnati and talked about company. He told me all the ways the show worked and how I have a, I just found it recently, um, a journal that I was keeping of that conversation and all the rehearsals in Cincinnati. And at one point he said, why would you want to, this is not the greatest part. Uh, you know, you, you've played George, you've played, uh, you've played Charlie, you've played other things for me. Uh, this part's a little bit more one dimensional. And I was like, I just want to be in a room with you again. And um, he told me all the things that were, I needed to do with Bobby and how to play him. We did none of them. Uh, <laughs> and I thought we are so screwed <laughs> when he comes to see rehearsals. <laughs> he came to watch the first preview. He didn't make rehearsals. There was a blizzard. And I remember him downstairs at this playhouse and just kind of like nodded at me before seeing the run. And I thought, well, this is it. I mean, we're over. He's just going to, I'm not doing anything he said to do. He's going <laughs> to hate it. And then um, luckily I was wrong. And uh, he was so, uh, he was over the moon and, uh, and also just John Doyle brings out the very best of the best in certain actors. And he found something in me that I didn't even know was there. So between working with those two masters, it just company is among the finest work I think I'll ever get to do. Um, because it's the material that is the material is stratospherically great and surprising and strange. The role was close to my heart. Uh, because I began to understand how much I was Bobby. And John is probably someone who inspired that concept of be yourself, do nothing, you're enough, 
It takes six weeks of rehearsals and 50 passes on every scene before you can start to trust that. But eventually, um, that simplicity that wins out with him is, um, is something really profound for an actor who is always thinking that we have to like play to the back role and, 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 you know, please the audience combining those two professionally that Steve's work and John's work that way was just um, a gift. So let's, uh, flash forward to 2020 as Mr. Sondheim turns 90 and, uh, you had an idea. Yeah, we were, um, you know, it's a big deal. And it's, he, uh, we had just worked together last summer on Roadshow, which was equally heavenly. And um, although all of us thought, forget it, man, this show will never pull it off in a week at Encores. <laughs> and I remember Brandon and I standing backstage going, well, we had a good run <laughs> professionally. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then um, it, it was fantastic. So he was very much on my mind as we were heading towards his birthday, it's his 90th and, the company production was going to open, which was so excited to get to see. I mean, Patty's just one of the greatest, greatest there is. And I had not seen Katrina uh, do anything actually, but I had seen her do concerts and, and couldn't wait to see what they were going to try with it. And um, so opening night of company was going to be Steve's, was Steve's birthday. And we all figured that, you know, it was going to be a big party for him. But as the crisis began to mount, it became clear that the last place a 90-year-old legend should be mm. is a, at a ballroom in midtown Manhattan. Sure, sure. So that was clearly beginning to disappear. The New York Public Library was going to do public events with all the different members of the cast of company that we were going to perform at and speak at. As a matter of fact, that journal, I was going to bring it and read some of it, and maybe share some stories. But um, it all began to fall by the wayside. And it just seemed really sucky and bummy to me that we weren't going to do anything for Steve and he was going to be, you know, stuck at home. And, um, we were sitting on the sofa at home and it was like, yeah, we should do something. The first idea was we should do, we should do something online. Just kind of like do a little, like a viral song contest or something. I, I could sing something and then kind of be like, Audra, you're next, you know, <laughs> or uh-huh. then, or Melissa, you know, you're, you know, high five, like a kind of like, a Steve Sondheim challenge, mm-hmm. but you know, making things go viral. It's not like there's no science to that. So how does that work? And <laughs> then we had this crazy idea, like, no, let's do an actual concert. It began smaller. And then we thought, let's sing some songs online, maybe get the 10 or, you know, 10 like super iconic uh, <laughs> performers connected to him. And maybe we'd be lucky enough to get some, some of those Broadway folks. And it'd just be a gentle little thing. But, um, one, people love him so much, and they were saying yes instantly. Speaking of Patty, I keep telling this story, but um, the guy, we wrote to her, and she wrote back within, within the hour. It was like, yep, when I want to sing, anyone can whistle. The big thing we asked people that we were reaching out to in our little list was sing something that inspires you or that comforts you or that brings you hope or that you know, really moves you about, about him. It's for his birthday, so think of it as a gift that you'd like to share which is why the performers in the end ended up doing things that were not things they were necessarily associated with. Not all of them. Some did. You know, I mentioned Melissa Erico, who I think is a sublime dot. And um, her performance at the Kennedy Center is one of my top five greatest things I've ever been part of that whole show. And uh, it's transcendent. And so 
she said, I want to do children in art and she does it so flawlessly, but few people can sort of recreate something that they've done extraordinarily well on stage in the weird, ridiculous way we have to create things right now where the pianist isn't even in the room mm. with you, you know? Um, it just, I think, I think, you know, I want to, all of it is great, but I'd say Merrill is the reason it expanded into crazy because Merrill said yes within about five minutes and Christine had said yes, Bransky, and she and I had been filming a good fight and, uh, and she was like, Christine goes, you know, I had this crazy idea. We had talked about a dinner that she had, Audra and Merrill and Christine had had this dinner with uh, Steve and Jeff and they kind of were like, well, it'd be so much fun to recreate that. Just like hang out, we just laughed. And she said, what if we do ladies and lunch? The three of us. And I said, that sounds great. Let's figure that out. And I told Meryl, because she was going to do something from Into the Woods that had been cut uh, from The Witch. And, uh, and that kind of, that idea of making this like trio out of those glorious divas was a fun thing. And I think people have been having these events online with a lot of celebrity shout outs, but it wouldn't necessarily mean they were going to perform. And when it became clear that Meryl was going to perform and that those names, these incredible names, the Steven Schwartz's and Bernard Peters and, you know, and I don't think we had Mandy just yet because we couldn't quite find him. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Donna, Donna, well, he was, he was like, I'm a Luddite. I'm a Luddite. We're like, we sent you emails. He's like, I just found them. I'm like, where did they go? <laughs> <laughs> And Steve was like, are you getting in touch with the people you want to get in touch with? I had reached out to him to say, we're going to do this. We want to do this for A-Step. A-Step is an organization founded by my great friend, Mary Mitchell Campbell, who um, was the musical director on Company and had worked with Steve on Sweeney and also on um, on Roadshow at The Public. And um, we knew that what we would do was have Mary Mitchell play the piano, send the artists the tracks that they had chosen, and then they would sing to that track with, you know, one in-ear piece and uh, send it back with vocals and piano separately. It seemed like an easy ask, but it actually was a ridiculous ask. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And once those names were announced on that press release, which is literally the last week before we actually put the whole thing together, Mm. all hell broke loose, where just people reaching out to us, people who who we'd reached out to that we hadn't heard from, saying, absolutely, we want to do this. And it I remember Christine calling and saying, honey, this is getting very serious. <laughs> We're getting global coverage. Um, for that week of making that show happen, as each artist would submit their videos, and remember, most everybody had to choose a song, figure out a way to rehearse it with Mary Mitchell on the piano or their accompanist if they had somebody. We were also coordinating with Maria Friedman, who is one of his great interpreters, and so who I think of as part of his family, who is in London, mm-hmm. and other artists who were in LA, and art, you know, people were scattered. They are taking um, the music, which Mary Mitchell has to choose keys, tempos, set it basically over the phone. You get about four different versions of your song. You choose the track you'd like. You sing to that track alone, film yourself, send that back to us team <laughs> that goes to a video editor who puts it together then that goes to audio to michael croyder who is an utter genius and made it sound as close to professional as he possibly could and at that time the technology that we were dealing with what we were hearing even from the performances on on television that came up with the that lady gaga special stuff sound wasn't really really great on these kinds of of things and croyder really did this gorgeous mixing work then that gets sent back 
to um, video for another pass, then sound again, then it gets uploaded to Paul Wintorek over at, at Broadway.com to begin to turn it into a bigger concert. This is for one solo. We had 32 artists. Plus, Mary Mitchell had the idea to have all these different people from Broadway who weren't working right now sing I'm Still Here. And then Paul thought, let's get someone from every single Broadway cast to do it. And some of them are major stars. And everyone said yes. And then I had the idea to have that Merrily Overture because I had watched Ravel's Bolero uh, on the New York Philharmonic website. And I thought, let's do it with Merrily, which is every pit musician that we asked playing each instrument alone in their homes. They followed a click track and they had a click map to tell them where they were playing, a piano that they're listening to because they can't hear the other instruments, and a conductor video that they were following. Steven Schwartz plays that, that Follies piece. He's got three iPhones on him, basically. One in his face, yeah. one in his hands, and one in the piano. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Steven Schwartz. So as these pieces mm. would come in... I thought he only had two hands. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how. It's Steven Schwartz. You can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> as these pieces would come in, all I just started weeping. I mentioned that Broadway book, the Martin Gottlieb, mm, uh, yeah. which I would flash on every night when we were performing company because they would be singing these lyrics and I'd think they're singing them about me. I remember reading those lyrics in that book and now they're singing them about me. I'm the available Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Donna Murphy sends you a video of herself working on sending the clowns. And I just think, who the hell do you think you are, Raul? Look at what you're looking at. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Bernadette Peters sends you that, flawless acapella thing and you're like i what 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 balls would make you think that you can ask these legendary stunning artists submit this this work with such vulnerability and uh, by the end of the week I, every video would come in and i just start sobbing when aaron sent in marry me a little i'm just weeping over my computer or katrina's her katrina's adaptation of joanna and i you just feel utterly um overwhelmed by the beauty of what we're part of, but also how much they love him. They just poured through it. We didn't know that all of that could translate. And uh, boy, it, it really did. Thank you for mentioning the Merrily Overture. The, the technology behind that just boggles my mind. Mm -hmm. And it just turned out mm -hmm. so beautifully. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, the first pass was like, woof. That one and someone in a tree, you go, oh boy, this, we might have we might have bit this one, you know, overeaten this one. And uh, but as it kept getting cleaned up and cleaned up, and we just listened to it once on a big sound system in our living room, you know, through like a big Sonos blow it out sound, it sounded like it had been recorded in a studio. That Merrily Overture, yes. And to me, that Merrily Overture is a very yeah. special uh, bit of Broadway magic. Mm -hmm. And because I played Charlie at the Kennedy Center. I have a very distinct memory of that overture being played. It was the cast in DC and Michael Hayden, Miriam Shore and Emily Skinner. Um, we, we would all gather for places behind the curtain. The overture would begin. And as soon as the curtain would, it would end, the curtain would rise on us and our places on stage. So we had to be on stage as a company. And at first we just kind of stood there, but as the days went on performing, we began to dance and the whole group would start mm. dancing a dance to just celebrating the song while the overture played. And one night Steve was standing in the wings 
And I sort of remember we all kind of glanced over at him and he was a little teary eyed and he turned to, uh, it would have been Max Woodward, I think backstage. He said, they're dancing to my music. They like my music. <laughs> he had a big smile on his face. Sweet. So that overture to me is just like this sentimental um, source of great joy and a beautiful memory. All right. Now tell us about magic to do. Join us. Time to lift our voices. Join us. Time for better choices. Join us. Reason to rejoice is we know. We can help Joe if you're sick, a mean and sour, chaos and abuse of power. And join us, volunteer in our world too. We got magic to do, me and you. We have each got a part to play. That came up because of the Sondheim. Uh-huh. Uh, now, I had met uh, Vice President Biden uh, because he is associated deeply with uh, Marishka and her Joyful Heart Foundation. And he had been honored at an event um, at Lincoln Center. I had also met him at the second inauguration as I had performed at the Kennedy Center for that in the Spanish, uh, the Hispanic gala, you know, the many balls that they did. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was kind of a no brainer. They came to Mary Mitchell. Bruce Cohen was producing this and they asked after they saw the Sondheim It happened the very next day. They called her up and said, we'd like you to help us produce this event. Uh, musically as viral this, uh, and it was going to be earlier actually than it was, but I think they timed it beautifully for the, for the hundred days. Uh, we did work on it, but then with the, the George Floyd's murder and the protests, uh, the world felt like it, we needed to take a long pause on a lot of the things that were being created. So I had met him. She was asked to do this and she reached out to to people. And, uh, and I know Bruce reached out to people and some of us who had, who had just a sort of no, no question, of course, anything. Um, and uh, Stephen uh, rewrote his lyrics and, played around with it and Titus as usual was spectacular. So um, we, again, put it together exactly the way that we did the Sondheim. You get the piano track or whatever, and you hear, I'm watching a video of Ellen Green sing for a little bit or watching a little bit of Renee sing. All of this is uploaded to a Dropbox and you just kind of peek through it and go, well, I, okay. Now I sort of know what I'm, what I'm doing. And, uh, and that's how that came about. I think I recorded it in a house in East Hampton in a corner. Hmm. Um, of the house and you set up a ring light and you do it. And for a little while, you're like, I'm singing magic to do for Joe Biden's campaign for president. This is so wonderful. And then you turn your ring light off and your camera and you're still just in a corner of a room by yourself. (laughs) These things are a series of rude awakenings. Every time you're done with one of these little projects where you just go, no, we're still in a pandemic and I'm still acting in my living room. John Doyle always used to say that when people would complain, people, would hit me up and complain about my Bobby. They'd say that it was too dramatic and that I didn't <laughs> understand it. And they'd tell me, you're, you need to be happy at the end of the show. I actually got screamed at by one guy one night. You need to be happy at the end of the show. You'd be happy. It's all so dramatic. And I was kind of crushed by that. And I told John John and he goes, well, darling, whenever they sing it in their living room, they are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so now I've been thinking about that a lot. I'm like, well, whenever I sing it in my living room, I'm brilliant. I don't think I'm ever going to get to do anything else. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking back at uh, some um, 
uh, some photographs of you with uh, Vice President Biden in 2016. So this is not a new relationship, it doesn't seem. No, no. Um, that was the I was an event at Lincoln Center. Joyful Thank heart. you. It happens to you for Joyful Heart. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that was a crazy thing. He called me out on stage to speak about what I had just performed. Uh, also, an arrangement by Mary Mitchell. She had put together a string quartet treatment of "Till It Happened to You," Lady Gaga's song about rape and sexual assault, which was one of those cases we were talking earlier for a second about what's what scares you. I remember Marishka asking me to sing it, and I thought, "What? No, I can't. What are you? That's no, that's terrifying. Uh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work." And it did, and uh, he really liked it. He also was on an episode of SVU. And his secret service kind of sat with us. So, I mean, you know, he wrote me a beautiful note because uh, I told him the story that my father, when he first became a citizen, my father went to the University of Delaware. And uh, we, I was raised, and I was born in Wilmington, actually, and uh, raised in Miami, but born in Wilmington and there for three years. My father told me a story before I performed for Biden that night that he had been, that Biden was the first person my father had voted for when he became an American citizen. Mm-hmm. And so Joe Biden wrote me a note about that, which is uh, I really treasure. I'm not asking for names, but did anybody turn you down saying, no, I am not for Biden? No. Mm-hmm. no. I expected we, that to be the answer. We, we, we definitely reached out to the choir. <laughs> you know, um, I think. A very big uh, choir. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I've met Trump a couple of times over the years and, and I did not think that. I had met a psychopath or a sociopath of any kind. So you never know where people stand or what they turn into or, you know, the, the unexpected uh, nightmare and disaster of what has been happening, which is, I, you know, he's a symptom of something that is mm. wrong fundamentally. Yes. It's he is not the cause. He is just a really visible, terrible symptom of something that's happening here. My own family is split in half, you know, Oh, Republican. Well, Cubans are very Republican conservative and Mm. it's a, it's a, a struggle to understand their point of view. And I think, when did we get so far apart? Yeah. So if he is the symptom, uh, do you think the arts can be part of the cure? I think so. Because I think the arts remind us that we are all much more similar than we, than we are different. And I also think that the, the arts, um, shock us into dealing with, particularly the theater, because it can respond very quickly, shock us into dealing with what's happening in the moment and see ourselves in it in a, in a, from a sort of objective perspective. And, um, but still have an emotional response to it. I think that it's not a piety to say that it is, this is what a country is made of. It's, isn't that Kennedy who said that? that it's, it's our mm. culture that we leave behind, you know, that, that, we don't remember what the accountants wrote when well, we might from Mesopotamia or something, but generally we, <laughs> we remember, we remember the art. We remember what the artists created to say we were here. This is how we lived. And this is what we miss now the most, isn't it? We all miss gathering together for the art of a good meal or the art of a great drink or the art of a, and then those are you know loose terms, but to gather in New York city to listen to music or to go to the New York film festival, to hear the Philharmonic play or the, any of the operas in town or see the museum to experience one another's takes on the world on Broadway or any of the magnificent theaters around the city, the summer without Shakespeare in the park, it is Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. devastation. I think 
it's the first a, one since 1959, right? Oh, is that right? It's just, yeah. I mean, is there anything more quintessentially New York than that summer? Than, mm-hmm. than when we were doing Twelfth Night and the people lining up overnight to get tickets, and mm-hmm. um, and you think this is why you live in New York? But yeah, I really firmly believe the arts are part of the response to that and part of the change because the arts show us who we are, and uh, and remind us this is us, whether we like it or not. And in seeing ourselves, we can begin to change ourselves. It's like watching yourself on a playback for for video when you're filming Hmm. on a TV show. You might hate what you see, but you always learn something. And eventually, you stop criticizing and you start changing. And and this is, it's, the arts are an extension of that. A painting or a bit of music uh, or any work of art. Um, It goes on beyond us which is what Steve writes about so beautifully in Sunday in the park with George, a creative act that will out, will outlast you. It will outlast your lifetime, whether it's a work of art or a child, we, we leave something of ourselves in the world and how we respond to it. We have 93 days left until the election. Uh, what, uh, what's on your calendar for the next 93 days? There's a lot of blanks right now because we are actually, Sure. I'm pitching a podcast, which was accepted to the IFP audio audio hub for IFP week. So we're uh, focusing down on that. I had an idea for a musical theater podcast, which we're working on. Maybe we can find distributors and, and uh, that is part of what I'm doing. And uh, uh, in terms of the, uh, and we're also working with uh, Warner music on um, a potential sort of deluxe treatment of take me to the world, the Sondheim concert mm-hmm. and uh so that is partly occupying my time and we've we made a film last week a bunch of us have gotten together and we are sharing equipment and moving it around the city and 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 state of new york and disinfecting it and people are filming a film in their homes <laughs> and maybe we're going to cut it together and in the interim you pick up the phone and you know sign every petition you can and uh i have been uh, speaking to some friends who were part of the um were part of the uh we're part of the campaign right now. I don't know what we can physically do because I don't know how much we can travel or what we could go door to door or, or what, but you know, any, we're all available and we're all talking about like, can I, can I pick up a phone? Can I put something else online? Is there anything I can say, anything I can tweet? Um, uh, these things come to you because I'm not as politically connected as, as, uh, as some other artists, but you, you, you jump on, you jump on board as soon as, as soon as it, it comes your way. So we're all discussing, but nothing particularly specific just yet. The, uh, um, you are, uh, internationally known for, uh, television shows like Hannibal and SVU, the law and order special victims unit and the good fight. Uh, and it reaches so much further outside of the Broadway community. Have you had uh, pushback from fans? Uh, you know, as you as you become political, uh, or yes. uh, more, yeah, <laughs> yes. There were a lot of people complaining when I when I put up all the Biden stuff. Um, and you uh, should just okay. shut up and act. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, I have often wondered whether an actor should have any kind of political platform. Mm-hmm. I'm not making any statements mm-hmm. about policy. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think it's my place. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a smart guy, and I'm curious yes. about these things, and I have a lot of interest in in the, in the political world and the sphere of what's happening to us historically. I'm a I'm a I'm a, I read a lot, and uh, right now I'm reading a 
you're going to think this is so boring, but I'm reading a history of the world, a giant, you know, tome of a history of the world. It, these things keep happening over and over and over again in, in, in human, mm-hmm. in human uh, uh, development. We, we make mistakes, we fall down, we pick them up again. It always feels like our time is the worst time and the best time. And, and it isn't really in the scheme of, of things that things don't last forever, but it does feel like we are stuck in a bad cycle. And uh, it really just does. So uh, if people don't agree with my take on that, well, you, you don't have to. That's the point of being in this country and not in Cuba where my parents were jailed if they, my mm. uncle was thrown in jail for mm. not, you know, saying the right thing. My mom was almost arrested because she didn't stand up for the international, the communist international when she was a teenager. She left that country when she was 14 years old by herself to come to America. My grandmother, my father's mother, def- took her boys on a boat in the middle of the night to make it to the United States with the clothes on her back. She did not speak the language and they had nowhere to go. She knew that her mother was in the States but didn't know how to reach her. And they got on a boat in the dark from Cuba to the United States. They were rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. My father had hepatitis because he'd gotten sick from food in the cafeteria. And my uncle was running from having been jailed. My grandfather was minister of the sugarcane industry under Castro and Che, mm. also named Raul Esparza. And he defected to the CIA in 67 because my grandmother forced his hand. It wasn't that he completely supported the government, though he had originally. Everybody hoped that Castro was going to be the future for Cuba and a place where they'd finally have their own country. But little by little, everything was taken away. The freedom of, of, to own your own businesses, to make money the way you saw fit, to think what you wanted to think, to even the schools were closed. Everything was, was, the businesses were nationalized. Everything was taken away. And my grandmother said to her husband, because my father was kicked out of the university because he would not join the, the Communist Party when he was in Cuba. And my, and my grandmother told me the day he came home and said that, they fell into each other's arms crying. And she said, we have no future here. And they risked their lives to come to this country. And my other grandmother would say, there is no greater place than the United States. We lost everything. And look at us now. Mm. Look how we live. Look at the things we have. This is a country you can come to as an immigrant and become anything you choose to be if you work for it. And they did. Well, it doesn't feel like it's that country right now, at least certainly not in relationship to immigrants. But mm-hmm. the fundamental idea of what this country is exists it's a kernel of something much greater than any one administration so if you don't like what i think about this administration that's fine it might not be my place to tell you what to think or how to vote it certainly isn't but i am allowed to express my opinions and support the causes i believe in because you know people have uh, you know always said that they don't like it when uh for example when actors politicize the oscars you know, during the, the telecast. And I can certainly see that point of view, but that's different from saying that actors or plumbers or anyone else is not allowed to have an opinion and, and express it. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, we support who we support, you know, ultimately you, you have your political beliefs and, and other people may, ch- may choose to feel that the, the Trump administration is something you want to cheer for. I'm not sure how I can't quite see that. So we mm. each stand on, on our side. Should an actor use, but can it, Here's the thing. You just won an Oscar. It's a, it's a, is it a platform for you to, to make political statements? Okay, maybe not the greatest place, but the instinct that comes over you is that you have a captive audience of millions for a moment. And they're watching you 
and you can say something that maybe will 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 resonate for a split second uh, beyond this awards ceremony because we all I mean awards are fun but awards what what is it you know <laughs> you mentioned there you mentioned the theater world award earlier Peter like that yeah. actually is one of my favorite awards I've ever gotten because it was a, a, a award that just said, said first of all you said you're part of a long line of something that is so much bigger than you Raul and you are welcome here and we think you're special and it's not an award that you you know you're not running in the streets uh advertising it and, mm-hmm. and having giant award ceremonies it's something that is very much for us so awards that's a very special thing to receive it's a very special thing to be nominated for the Tony's. very special to to win the, the the things that i have won and it, what comes over you in that moment is like say something profound <laughs> <laughs> I have this platform says I, you know, as it gets exponentially more so and living in an era like we're living in right now, it's, it feels irresponsible to not speak up and, and contribute. It's just that everything we say right now feels politicized. Every move you make feels like you are damaging something. Everybody is in their little fiefdoms of, of personal, um, of, of personal sort of uh, bickering and grudges and it becomes very hard to have a conversation. I find that uh, people that are telling actors to uh, shut up and just keep acting and don't say anything political will also have an 8 by 10 glossy of Ronald Reagan hanging in their house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, yeah. But I mean, what you did for Biden was not, it, it, it was not part of something that you decided to say on the Tony Awards and take a half hour to do it. No, I think that that's totally different. When I was doing Speed the Plow, actually, I flew out to Los Angeles and did an event for Obama when he was running for office. It was an event. With, I always love to tell this story because there's an event for Biden at the Regent Beverly Wilshire. And um, I feel like Bruce Cohen may have been there that night, too. Bruce produced uh, Pushing Daisies, and I think we may have had a conversation about this. But um, it was an event with Ben Harper. I sang like America the Beautiful, and um, Barbara Streisand, the three of us helping to raise money for Obama. And the funny thing is I got to hang out with the candidate back, back in the kitchen of the Regent Beverly Wilshire for 15 minutes before I went out to perform. And I got to hang with, with Laura Dern and Quincy Jones and Ben Harper. I did not, no one got to meet Barbara Streisand. <laughs> 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 That's hysterical. I was going uh, to ask if you had any direct dealings with her for this. Uh, no. <laughs> and you know what? She gave Obama like a stack of index cards to explain everything that was wrong with his campaign. It was the day AIG collapsed. <laughs> yeah. I remember it was the day AIG collapsed. I flew out. We were, he, knew, he knew everything. He knew I was doing Speed the Plow. He knew what was going on with that. He knew the whole thing. And we talked for a bit. And I thought, boy, he was well prepared. And, uh, and you just felt so special. But she, you know, you didn't get to talk to her. She had these index cards that she drew up. So he read them on stage to the audience. It's like, oh, here's what's wrong with my campaign, according to Ms. Streisand. <laughs> um, and he just sort of involved everybody in this sort of, let's take apart my campaign. And I thought, well, you know something? She has seen presidents come and go, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like she's, she's like the uh, previous Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. <laughs> Come on. She's been famous since the 60s. And she is, 
she is a constant. The rest of us can keep moving, but she is a constant. <laughs> Raul, uh, I, I, I can't let you out of here without asking you two questions. The first is about uh, reflecting upon Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, now, 19 years later after Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, ha- have you thought about it and had any new revelations about that? And just what's your feeling about Tick, Tick, Boom? Would would you believe that I actually I came to a house here in P Town last night where the guys were listening to I guess Raul Esparza radio or something and they were playing parts <laughs> of Tick Tick Boom, and I sat at the table and went, boy, it's weird to hear your own voice from the other side going, oh, that's that thing that guy does. Listen to that. That's that little trick that guy that Raul uh. does. Um, <laughs> Tick Tick Boom. Tick Tick Boom. I feel is the show that really put me on the map in New York, and um, it was. Um, I was very hesitant to leave Rocky Horror because um, it was Rocky Horror and it was Broadway. And I thought, well, uh, will I ever work on Broadway again? And Daphne Ruben Vega was the one who said, she was like, Papa, you got to go and do it. You got to try it. And, and I, I give you my blessing, baby. And, um, and so I, uh, I, I had done the auditions and then I was sitting reading the script thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't leave Broadway for, for something off Broadway like this. But as I would read through it, um, um, and I remember I was reading it over the phone to my wife, Michelle, at the time we, were, we had separated and she was in Miami and it was all sort of heartbreaking. It was all this success coming my way. And I was in this place that was very vulnerable. And, and uh, I read the script to her over the phone and I began to sob lis- uh, listening to um, see her smile and then the song why, and then louder than words because Larson hits a run there all of a sudden where that play knows exactly what it's doing. Mm. You just, even though David Auburn pulled it together from five different things, John Larson, like he did this consistent vision of why he was writing this piece. And those are the songs that tell you like, and then come to your senses. Those are the songs that tell you, this is what, what I mean to say. You see a, a young writer go here. This is my voice. Come to your senses. Incidentally, it was originally sung by Marin Macy. He wrote it for her. And mm. she sang it in a workshop of superbia. And Marin was at our opening and she had worked with Amy Spanger in Kiss Me Kate. Uh, it was incredibly moving. And uh, so that song is very connected to Marin for, for all of us. And Tick, Tick, Boom is that moment, that moment that made me cry reading it over the phone in a place of loneliness and what is my life. That's what that play is about, is that moment of who do I want to be when I grow up? Who do I, who do I want to be? Who do I want to become now? I'm turning 30. Who, I want to, who do I want to become? And it's okay. And I say this all the time. The, sh- the show is, it's about not when people say, you're great, you should do this. It's what happens when people say, you know what? Give up. Don't do it. Can mm. you still do it? Can you still make a connection, a commitment to who you want to be and how you want to live? And this resonates beyond a writer or a theater piece. It's everybody relates to it. Our, co- our, our cast album came out on 9-11. And That's everything right. was, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. just, you know, destroyed around mm-hmm. us. And I went to St. Patrick's that day. So I lived in Midtown and I walked over to St. Patrick's to light a candle and this sort of ineffectual, hopeful Catholic <laughs> <laughs> way that I was brought up and, you know, and say a prayer. Because what do you do except hope to add your voices? And eventually we volunteered and eventually everybody figured out a way to contribute to the solution with 9-11. But, um, which incidentally is why now feels so horrible because New Yorkers come together. New Yorkers get together to solve problems. We meet and here we can't. 
And I'm standing on the steps of St. Patrick's and there was a cop there who said, you're doing Tick, Tick, Boom. I saw that show. You guys mm-hmm. need to keep doing it. A cop. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then we went back to work three days later and there were all these kids in the audience looking up at me and I'm singing the, the words to why, hey, what a way to spend a day. I make a vow. I'm going to spend my life this way. And I, it kills me. It just chokes me up. Remembering those faces looking up at you going like, say something to remind me why I'm here. And uh, he nailed it. He nails it. He nails it for all human beings because we all have that moment where you're like, I'm afraid and it's not going to work. And maybe I should give up and things are bad. And he says, no, make a commitment to yourself. Um, it's a, he, he was a massive loss. I think, yes. What mm-hmm. he could have created. He spoke for a generation I'm sorry, Tick, Tick, Boom is going to be a movie with a director by Lynn manuel -Manuel Miranda. And uh, according to what I'm reading, it says filming began in March 2020 and is currently on hold due to... Yeah, Mm -hmm. Lynn was saying that um, they were working on... Lynn was telling me, and I don't know if I can give it away, but he was saying that they were working like at Larson's old apartment building. Yeah. Um, and that they were filming and, and, uh, I don't remember what they were about to start doing, but we were talking about it when he joined up for the Sondheim stuff. And, uh, all I said was like, well, Hey, when am I going to make my cameo? <laughs> um, <laughs> I just think it's about time. We said this Victoria Leacock, who's, you know, the daughter of the great Richard Leacock, a filmmaker, uh, the cameraman on DA Pennebaker's company, <laughs> Victoria, one of our producers. And I were like, this is a, this is a film. There's a film in here. There's a way to do Tick, Tick, Boom that feels like a, a, it could be a student film or a feature film or a documentary or it can be any number of things. But there's a, a film in here about living poor and hopeful in New York. Mm. So I think it's about time. I'm thrilled that, that Lynn is putting it together. And uh, he, I did not know this, but he told me many years ago that he used to uh, come into the city and sleep on people's sofas just to watch me do Tick, Tick, Boom. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Lynn saw it over and over again. So it's a that's very moving to me. Let me uh, before we let you go. I'm sorry we've kept you much longer. Yes, than we we promised to. I'm I got sorry nothing to do. That. I'm looking at the beautiful water. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. There's flags and a sky, and I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the beach. My last question. <laughs> my last question of the morning is is that uh, now that you are uh, up in P Town, and when you walked in, did everybody say, uh, "Oh, good, the chef is here." <laughs> uh, are you are you did you bring garlic and paisley and I, you know and- what we got a house with some friends in fire island a few weeks ago and i cooked a meal every day and i <laughs> and i didn't resent it <laughs> <laughs> did you yell at people throw things of course Come i on. did oh did i'm saying bam yeah <laughs> bam i uh Teresa uh made me into a chef i worked with a, with a guy named ben ben lickett on that who is a professional chef who taught me all these nice skills and all this, the ways to cook quickly for specifically those recipes. I find myself at home now, just able to, I I do like to cook. I always have, but I've always followed recipes. And now I'm just like kind of opening the refrigerator and going, what do we got? I'll make something. You freed yourself. (laughs) I freed myself. It used to take me two hours to make a meal. And now it's like, I got this half an hour. We're ready to go. Learning to cook like that. One day I made a, a, uh, one of the dishes from the show 
and I made it in, in 12 minutes, which is slow for a restaurant, but incredibly <laughs> fast for me. All the pans going, the fire, what have you. Put it on the table in 12 minutes from start to finish. That is chopping wow. to, um, to, to making the meal. And, but then I ate it in two. Like, the, adrenaline is so, <laughs> the adrenaline is so high. And also, you can ask Krista Rodriguez if you ever speak to her. I managed to slice myself to hell on stage. And there have oh, been no. performances where she was dealing with props and she opened a, a box that was full of my blood. And oh, Krista wow. on stage went, Whoa! she goes, Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> my God. We're talking about the play Seared for those yes, thank who don't you. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're talking about uh, that was done at MCC last year. And I was convinced that in a few weeks it was going to move to the Golden Theater. Is there any talk of moving that play? I hope Listen, there, there is. is so much talk about it. But here's the question. I don't think that they have found they didn't find the right kind the the small enough space wasn't available because it needs to be like you say the golden uh, 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 a Broadway space that would allow us to uh, let the audience see the kitchen smell the food circle in the square you know (laughs) yeah circle is a tricky space man it sure is don't love it I think certain shows work beautifully there metamorphoses for instance yep Rocky for instance Mm -hmm. um I thought Fun Home worked well in there, but it doesn't. It isn't. No, I I didn't love Oklahoma there as much as I loved it at St. Anne's. It's uh-huh. a tricky space. Hmm. But if David um, Rockwell built a kitchen there, no. David could do anything. Yeah, <laughs> David designed David designed chess, uh, which we did at the Kennedy Center two years in 2018. Yeah, we were looking at with Michael Mayer directing it and the whole team involved and huge Abba guys and Tim Rice. So they're talking about a potential revival and. David is one of those set designers who uh, like he's gone beyond even thinking about what, how to, how to bring. He, he's a, he's a strange he's, puppy though. He's, he, yeah. you know, he, he, I mean, his first Broadway show was his first show. His first show period was Rocky on Broadway. With Rocky. Yeah. And I mean, and he's an internationally known uh, uh, architect and designer and interior. Uh, he's just an amazing and amazing that David Rockwell Corporation uh, just has done things worldwide. And I yes. mean, he came into Broadway with no experience and said, oh, we're going to have a hydraulic flip of the entire stage <laughs> at Circle yeah. in the Square. Yeah, and because, so, because David... As a designer, he just sees he it. Know, he doesn't know any better. He sees it, and he doesn't know any better. You can't if if no one said no to you because you didn't grow up doing this thing. That this is a thing that you're like. I see these possibilities. Let's make them happen. Then you're gonna you're gonna think far outside the box, which is what I was about to say with chess. He was talking to me about like holograms. You know whether he uses these ideas or not. You know what does how does how how does computer technology enhance a play not just as a backdrop but what what do we do how how do we relate to each other in a theater using technology what does that mean um you know who knows what he'd do with it but he immediately thinks of something far beyond what the concept of a set is or how a set works he thinks huge um and uh yeah, anyway, I don't know why we're off in the David tangent, but I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like trying to bring me back we, to what were we, we were trying about? to. We were talking about Seared coming to Broadway. Oh, yeah. How, how we Seared and Seared. Seared Square. Yeah, so I, they, they did, in fact, Peter, I think to, ask, to answer that question, we definitely, um, it was discussed. Uh, I, I don't know what happened. Things We finished, what, in December, and then we were kind of waiting around and, February rolled around in March and was like, okay, as things began to shut down, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would also make a good TV series. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you could spend a lot of time with those people in the restaurant. And Teresa wrote a great role. Harry in in Seared is just a 
bastard and I love him. So <laughs> wonderful to play. Um, <laughs> that cast was sensational and it was, a uh, that was a run too, where it was completely sold out every single day. Now, granted, a little tiny theater, but it was very mm -hmm. special to show up. For, we had extended before we even opened, so mm -hmm. I hope that it that it does have uh, some life. I would love to see it on Broadway. There was a little bit of talk of London too. All of this sounds like an impossible dream right now. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. We'll be back, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, we're looking at uh, the rumor mill is March or April of 2021. Mm, uh, we're going to okay. see some some things relaunching, and uh, we haven't lost you yet to the West Coast. Have you? Do you own a house on the West Coast or a place that you no, are? No, I, I New York is home, and 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 my family's in Miami, so New York is home. I like LA very very much, but I think it's an incredibly lonely city for an actor. Mm -hmm. I have always enjoyed being there, and I have always enjoyed. Um, working there and i think they have great food and a lot mm -hmm. of beauty but it is a lonely place for an actor because uh, it has no immediacy and you spend a lot of time in your car and, you, <laughs> and whereas in new york if you have an audition and it didn't go so well you can walk out on the street and there's people and there's life mm -hmm. there it's just you with your thoughts when we did leap of faith down at the amundsen i couldn't get people to come see us downtown downtown they're like oh the traffic yeah. Which I understand, yeah. but it is. Yeah. I stayed at yeah. I stayed at a house in the, in the uh, Palisades. I didn't belong to a, a very very famous friend, and uh, I didn't see a single human being for a month in the neighborhood. So I, I find that um, prepping for the pandemic. That's exactly what it felt like. Like it was just me and the coyotes. Um, it just. I don't think loneliness is conducive to anything but navel gazing. <laughs> if you're an actor mm. and a navel gazing actor is about the least interesting thing there is. <laughs> then I think the, if that's, if that the guy that stands up and gives a speech at the Oscars about politics, yeah, that guy should shut the hell up. You know, if you, if you're completely solipsistic and, 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 and involved in, in only your own experiences because you never see anybody and you never do anything, <laughs> you never go anywhere, which LA is conducive to, then, how can you be a good actor? I just don't understand it. Filmmaking in general is also a little bit lonely because it's just, it's you and that camera for, for a while. So I'm such a New Yorker at heart. I can't, uh, I can't shake the, the energy of the city. Well, we have to uh, get you back on a Broadway stage as soon as Broadway is back. Mm -hmm. so. Amen. <laughs> so, uh, Raul, well, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. We really, really appreciate it. Um, we will have uh, a link to all of Raul's stuff, yeah, his website, his Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the other information on the, in our show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as a link to our 2015 interview with uh, Raul and coming back and uh, talking with us five years later. We really appreciate it, and, and we took so much of your time. Thank you so much. This is lovely. I, I guess we could do this all day. <laughs> it's such a drag, she said, when the world's so mean. It's just a red flag, I say. Gotta look for the green. Oh, something's breaking my baby's heart. Something's breaking my baby's heart Something's breaking my baby's heart oh, I just want to see her smile
Well, that was just delightful to have Raul on for yeah. so long. We really uh, we had scheduled him for fifteen minutes, 15 and, minutes right. and 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 that's that's my fault. But he seemed willing to go forward, and we love having him on. And the you stories, bet. the stories mm. are wonderful. So we won't have uh, further discussion of a topic uh, for this week, but next week we'll have another topic and uh, have that. But. Until then, we need to get an answer to last week's trivia. So, Peter, what do you have? Well, the question was, what musical had a cast that had appeared in 88 different shows in which they gave a total of 37,095 performances? Now, granted, it sounds impossible. But nevertheless, in the uh, playbills for A Chorus Line, when it opened 45 years ago, um, that actually was in the playbill. Uh, and they listed all the shows that the cast, the original cast had been in, ranging from a uh, joyful noise. They counted the uh, like the uh, <laughs> Times uh, ABCs all the way down to your own thing, an off Broadway musical. So uh, because it was the 45th anniversary of A Chorus Line uh, coming to Broadway, I thought it was a good question to ask. And by the way, Paul Witte was smart enough to say, I bet that's the reason you gave the uh, question. Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Paul. Tony Janicki tumbling to third place again. Uh, J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadood, and Robert Lobiondo got it. Okay, this week's. What do these musicals, all of which got a Tony nomination or two, have in common? Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, Crazy For You, Saturday Night Fever, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Susical, Steel Pier, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Victor Victoria. What amazes me about that question is that <laughs> I did not remember that Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public got a Tony nomination. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it did for um, D. Hody. I may be. Oh, uh, that. That oh I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you meant Best Musical. Oh no! By no uh, means. By, by no, no means. By no means. Not even in the sunset. By year. no means. <laughs> by no means. <laughs> so, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of uh, Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jenna Tessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. One night I saw the good Lord's face I cringed beneath the covers Sure the Lord would strike me dead Let me tell you what our Savior said He said, Jack Newton I wipe away your shame I pardon all your sins But in return, I'll take your name Go forth from here and be reborn As Jonas, meaning my prophet And Nightingale He who sings Tell all your fellow sinners the forgiveness Jesus brings. And my life was clear as it could be. I understood why God had called on me. The baddest of all of the bad My criminal record is so friggin' checkered and plaid Oh yeah But if I turn from hellbound to holy I turn from the wrong to the right Well who better I say to show others the way to the light So if you've lost that life 
I'll help make you a winner. If you're down and out, I'll point you a bare hand. 